G'day and welcome to Occupied. This is a very special episode where I actually get to explore the concept of moving from clinical into academia with both Michelle Perryman and returning to Occupied, Dr. Jesse Wilson. Uh, This is part one and there'll be a part two just because we talked for so long. Hey, sorry about that. That is more than okay. How are you? You look like a radio station DJ. <laughs> I've been told that like three times this week. I don't know. I don't know. It's just it's what I do. You look banging, mate. Perfect. That's how I roll. <laughs> Very professional. Very professional. In all fairness, though, when you do something, Brock, who I've known you, what, six, seven years now, you do it properly. So. <laughs> yeah, it's cool, man. <laughs> um. How's things? How are you? Good. Well, last night, right, I was dreaming about crocodiles. So I'm assuming it's because I was thinking about this, you know, coming from Australia. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, why is this crocodile trying to bite me? (laughs) (laughs) That's random. That is random. Crocodile Dundee a lot. It's like one of my favorite movies. (laughs) That's embarrassing, but sure. (laughs) Yeah, so that that was my... But otherwise, I'm good, yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Um, not too bad. Not too bad. Flat out and drowning in work, but that's okay. Yeah, me too. We'll make it through. We'll make it through. Yeah. <laughs> so, Michelle, this is Jesse. Jesse, this is Michelle. Nice to meet you. Hi, Michelle. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Sorry, I should have said hello before. <laughs> so. It's all good. <laughs> no, that's okay. <laughs> That's all right. It's always the awkward three-way conversation. I know. Well, that's cool, though. So what are we talking about again? We're talking about our movement into academia. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So this is something that I have recorded myself like four times and hated it every single time. Okay. Because, I don't know, I think my, well, I don't know, I don't really know how other people's sort of movements went, but I think mine was probably a little bit different just because of the situation I was in and how I moved into it. So, Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a timely one as well, you know, coming from, you know, being trained in Canada, moving to Australia, coming back to Canada. And it's just, I don't think it's an easy journey and people don't typically talk about it. Yeah. Like I remember doing my PhD and nobody ever talked about that transition. It was just sort of a taken for granted and, you have this sort of idealized preconceived notion that you'll just get a job right away and it'll be perfect and you'll move forward into what you envision an ideal academic to look like, but nobody really talks about it, I guess. Because so, we, like in the last podcast that I did with you, Jesse, uh, we talked about your PhD project. Did you go straight into academia after that or did you, were you still working clinically for a bit once yeah. you'd finished that? Yeah, I was working clinically while I was doing my PhD, so part-time through school health services. Um, So I was seeing kids in the schools still, um, and I was also teaching sessionally at Western, a number of courses, and then doing my PhD sort of at the same time. So um, towards sort of the final year of my PhD, I passed over my clinical caseload because I needed to sort of refocus, I guess, a little bit on actually completing the PhD. Because 
because I had Drew, my daughter, in the middle of it as well. So it was a bit of a um, chaotic sort of end, you know, sort of a rush to the end kind of thing. So, yeah. How the hell after did you I fit finished, all of that in? I know. Drew was a very good baby, and she came to the office a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it probably stunted her development a little bit. But, yeah, she, um, okay, she was a very good best. baby. <laughs> Yeah, she she was. She lived under the desk for a while, and I'd rock her in her car seat, and she would fall asleep for um, those baby carriers, you know, the sort of pea pod things where they're on your body, and you can't tell they're there almost, that yeah. sort of thing. But uh, I was lucky because my supervisor has um, a lot of kids, so she was very understanding with me bringing Drew to work and things like that. But, um, yeah, once I graduated, I got the job at JCU and moved into that position. So I was unsuccessful at obtaining a job at Western, which was sort of a teaching focused re position. And um, again, the same thing, it was like an 80% teaching load, um, but the real focus was on potential for um, more of an academic position, I guess, in terms of looking at grants and research publications. And I wasn't clever enough to publish during my PhD. Uh, so <laughs> that was a bit of an issue. <laughs> I, maybe, I maybe was working, teaching, and bearing children too much during that time period that I guess I um, forgot slip, to publish. Your mind. So, um, yeah, I moved into the position there at JCU. So I didn't work in between sort of getting my PhD and then working in academia. I yeah, kind of went right. You were working yeah. during it. And Michelle's pretty much, well, she's doing the PhD, but uh, pretty much transitioned to uni life at the same time I did. Well, mine's a bit of an accidental story, really, as you're probably aware. But like I, um, so I started my PhD in the first year of um, in the first year I was doing clinical practice and I was just consistently not being able to do it essentially because you know working full-time coming home and then at the time my mum my mother wasn't very well so then I was taking care of her and then my PhD just wasn't the forefocus of my idea basically this was this was um, still in England this was in England, yeah. So I, yeah. I, I'm actually from England, as you could probably tell. But my, <laughs> yeah, yep. my accent's got a bit of a twang to it now, so I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what I sound like anymore. <laughs> but it, <laughs> I know from Bristol. Well, I'm from Bristol in England, and I usually sound a little bit farmery. So I'm hoping that that comes back to me. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I was doing my PhD first year I was still doing clinical practice and I just didn't have time to actually just do my PhD um, and I was just kind of struggling along really I was doing some reading but it wasn't you know purposeful reading as we would call it as occupational therapists and um, and then I kind of was just like you know actually I just need to quit my job and I'm quite a person I know Brock kind of knows me quite well I don't really have a plan I just do it so I <laughs> stop not, not stop laughing, Brock. <laughs> so I just kind of quit my job, and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to email uh, the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee and just see if I can just use their library while I come and visit family. And then um, they are just amazing, actually. Like I've had a really lucky kind of spin with them. Is they asked me for a resume? You know, they basically opened their doors and their arms to me and was just like you know come and actually stay with us and do some work with us and 
support our program development at the same time when we'll basically let you have all the resources for free and will aid your research essentially so initially I was there for you know the first six months and they were asking me you know what my interests were and my specialties and of course this is after hiding under my desk because I'm like a little bit scared I'm like oh my god what's happening <laughs> um, I started teaching you know a few sessions and stuff like that and then now they've actually extended my time because my research is ingrained within American culture. It's quite difficult to you know, switch a PhD to different cultures and contexts. So, yeah, they've extended my time for two years. And then now I'm teaching a full blown course, well, a few courses on my own. And, you know, it's just kind of spiraled into this. Hey, why don't you try this kind of thing? So I don't know if it was ever really in my plan to be in academia, but in, in your plan that never existed. Yeah, I didn't really have one. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, this is fun and I'm enjoying it. Um, but I'm glad, like, I, I have a really good mentor there. So when I was, you know, when I first got there, I was just so, like, felt out of my depth and just a little bit scared, really. And I think I was talking to you, Bob, because you were just about moving into it, into academia yourself, weren't you? So mm. I was like, yep. what do I do? <laughs> um, and I, I was saying the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So I'm really lucky. I, I work alongside Ginny Sto, uh, Dr. Ginny Stofel, and she um, she kind of took me under her wing, really. So I'm really appreciative of that. Um, but it's it's really difficult, you know, coming from an English system to the American system. Like that that's my biggest kind of hurdle, even still now. You know, although we all speak the same language, even us us lot, every like words just mean completely different things, and I'm like sometimes they can be controversial and sometimes <laughs> sometimes it can be swear words to me and I'm like hold up <laughs> this is coming from like probably the most well-traveled human being that I know and if you're stumped I'd be completely stuffed oh it's yeah it was it's quite it's very different you know even the grading system um even you know what they teach occupational therapy in the US is completely different to the philosophy in the UK so it's yeah it's taken a bit of a learning curve but I think I'm starting to get there like I said having that mentor is unbelievably an amazing resource um, and UWM just like you know University sorry University of Wisconsin Milwaukee are just so open to teaching you and having you there which I was really surprised about I didn't know that all universities kind of do that um, but I feel at PhD level, they just seem to open their doors to you because quite a few universities have been quite, you know, useful and helpful in actually wanting to progress your research. I guess because some people, like you said, Jesse, um, they even, no one talks about the challenge of a PhD, mm. but it's kind of unspoken support that they give you. I don't know if you felt the same way. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that all of us, to some extent, have sort of like, didn't think about doing a PhD or moving into academia was the same. Um, I, I went into academia because I had my son and I was on maternity leave and uh, the same thing, a door opened and an opportunity presented itself in terms of coming back to Western um, to be able to do a PhD. And I always thought, well, that would be interesting, wouldn't it, in terms of, you know, trying something different and seeing about ways in which, you know, you can help to inform, I guess, future generations of students and then also, you know, maybe learn a little bit more about research. And 
I think that that sort of undercurrent of support is there. Um, and I think sometimes for me, it came a lot from other PhD students that were at different phases of their journey. So we were very lucky. I was very lucky at the point that I entered into the PhD program that a lot of really good, strong, potential future academics were going through the process of sort of in, you know, third and fourth year of their PhD. And either by sharing common spaces or um, seminars or whatever it was, that they offered a lot of support where you didn't feel judged or you didn't feel out of place. And they could sort of teach you, I guess, the ropes of where you were going and, and take away some of your anxiety around feeling like you didn't have all the answers to sort of those questions around how do I write ethics and yeah. proposals and how do I how do I code I don't even know what that means you know those, those sorts of things which I thought was really nice yeah I think uh, I think I'm gonna have to start a PhD now just so I fit in here um, <laughs> we don't judge you bro no it's fine I'm, you're allowed to I, 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 I judge me it's okay um, yeah. I think I kind of take bits and pieces of both stories because I was academia was always something that I had thought eventually I will go into um it was always on my yeah it was always part of my plan as Michelle knows I probably plan things enough for both of us uh I'm an <laughs> over planner but at the time I was on long service leave from my clinical job and just started doing some casual tutoring at the uni, which I th I still think to this day was probably the best thing I did on terms of getting my head around that job because I was I was only working like it was maybe twenty hours a week. It was essentially part time, but it gave me enough to one stop me from being bored while I was on long service, but it it gave me enough exposure to the job to try and kind of like ease into it. And then towards the end of that first semester was when I got uh, put on full-time. But one of the things I think the big differences that I noticed between, say, clinical work and the academic team, and I'm interested to see if it was similar uh, for you guys, was like I was in really good teams in both situations, but how the teams functioned was very different. So in clinical work, in the team that I was in, it was very much about everyone getting in and working together and actually doing whatever the jobs were that needed doing together. Whereas this teamwork in academia is very much more around uh, support and supporting you to get whatever it is done as opposed to getting in there and helping you physically do it, which is what I found in clinical. Yeah. Any thoughts? Oh yeah, definitely. So for me, clinical was a lot different. Um, I mean, the team was amazing. They're really great. Um, but also it felt like they just needed to get done what they needed to get done. It wasn't ever about, you know, fully supporting you. It was supporting your time, um, essentially. So when they needed to have something done, um, they would get theirs done and then you would have to do it alongside it. It wasn't about, you know, them coming in to support you. It was, you're kind of on your own in some ways. 
Um, yep. Of course, they were kind of mentoring if you needed to, like, you know, you needed to ask a question, but it wasn't ever about a team effort because I was in an acute setting and sometimes I had my own wards. Um, and that's quite, that was quite difficult, really, because it was kind of, you know, you're thrown in at the deep end. Um, whereas with academia, it just seems like you are also shown the way, but you also need to discover you know, you need to kind of look at your abstract thinking and your critical synthesis and analysis of what you're actually doing. And for me, it's quite challenging because I am in a whole different culture. And a lot of people think, you know, like our countries, Australia, Canada, America and the UK are quite similar in terms of the education system, but actually we're, we're very different, um, which is really interesting as well to, you know, to learn a whole different system of how it how it works. Um, and they don't, you know, in, in America, they don't particularly grade you into that, you know. Um, and I'm, I'm only classed as a visiting scholar there. So my picket, like, you know, my, I'm like kind of lower on the, you know, the experience side of it. Um, but everyone's kind of got the same experience, but you've got a different role in America. So they have academic um, and faculty staff. So academia is more about, you know, the clinical perspective that they've had. They've kind of come from practical kind of work. And they, some of them actually do do research, but it's not really allocated to their time. Whereas faculty, what, one great thing at UWM is actually all the faculty teach, which is not um, across the board in America. So they have to at least teach one class or a a series of classes throughout the year, which kind of keeps them in touch, you know, with the actual clinical perspective and supporting student development. Um, but then they, the faculty also have allocated research time so they can write grants, so they can bring funding, you know, and, and support that way. So they all, they are all a team, if that makes sense. And they all mm -hmm. do support you in terms of, if you've got a question, somebody will be there for you, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it is about, you know, that process of discovery and teaching yourself. And I think this is one thing, you know, you, the PhD route is completely different in the UK to what it is in America. So I'm completely independent in my research at the moment. I mean, I have got supervisors, which are amazing that I go back to to ask questions. Um, but I kind of direct where I'm going to go, you know, um, what classes I'm going to take. And it's that level of independence, you know, to when you are seeking academic posts I feel that you have to um, take responsibility if that's something that you want you have to kind of find it I was quite lucky in terms of stump I actually even stumbled upon my PhD if I'm honest um, in some ways so it was kind of you know it's I think in my mind I was always like I'm going to do a PhD of course but I didn't know when I didn't know where it was just kind I, of I know. remember talking I remember you talking about that before you'd even finished OT yeah, so I like I must have like you know it was in my past. That's the, and, like, it's the one plan that you've ever made. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like um, you know, like now because I'm doing there's a research development framework in the UK, um, and that supports you in terms of what skills that you need to be to be an independent researcher, and upon that is things such as teaching, is things such as um, syllabus development and course development and program. Um, and so I'm aware that now I'm within this role, I'm using that framework to support me to get those skills that I need to be an independent researcher. 
So, so does that does that not exist in the states like that type of framework? I don't think it does. I think it, it's it's called FITI. Um, it's actually a UK framework. It's um, uh, and I think it's built from the National Health Institute. It's built through their kind of skills that they previously had. Um, but it's fantastic. I mean, I think anyone can kind of use it. I'm, I'm not too sure, but I, I know that a lot of the universities in the UK have registrations with it um, and you have to pay a certain amount of money, but it's it's basically like you're keeping a portfolio of everything that you're doing. Yep. So, um, and it, it has significant, you know, things such as impact. What impact are you making? What research skills? How are you teaching? How, what are your grants like? Um, what, how is policy influencing your research? So it's just having an awareness that surrounds um, your research, essentially. So, um, but that was kind of the difference in, you know, academia and, and clinical practice was that it's a sense of discovery, but there's always, there's always a safety net, um, definitely, especially for something that's out of the cultural context in which I am. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if that's the same everywhere what do you think Jesse is that is that the same for you yeah I think um because in clinical practice I've worked sort of more from a consultative model sort of independently something similar to what you were saying Michelle you know on an acute care ward but in the schools so you don't have much contact with your supervisors and the physios and the speech pathologists you're kind of on your own you know kind of out there working so the support looks quite different versus working in a more sort of interdisciplinary pediatric clinic or an ACT team that I've worked on before where you have your supports right there sitting at the next desk to you. So you collaborate a lot more, you work together on treatment plans and interventions and very rarely in sort of a clinic or an ACT team would I be, you know, sort of on my own for on a day-to-day sort of um, basis. But the support is you know, a lot more hands-on, I guess, in terms of that. And then moving into more academia, the support is very much more of a self-discovery. And I remember being frustrated with that uh, many times and saying that to my supervisor even, you know, and and she knew that, you know, me feeling very much um, like... um, I was pretending to be there, like I didn't belong because I felt like everybody knew what they were supposed to do but me, but I was pretending that I knew it so that I felt like I fit in. Um, And I remember feeling frustrated because not knowing that that was the plan all along, you know, and then sitting down and having a really honest conversation with her and saying like, I feel like I'm floundering, like I'm, I'm sort of false in this sense of being and moving into more of an academic position and her saying, well, that's what, that's what the PhD is all about is survival and is for independence in this, in this space, you know, of being able to question what you're doing and why you're doing it and finding your own solutions to the problem so that when you do sit and defend your project, that you feel confident and competent in doing that. And you're not relying on me to give you the answers or to help shape your thinking. That's, that's up to you. Yeah. And after that conversation, it was like that aha moment, right? That, okay, it is okay not to know the pathway forward and that stop comparing yourself to people who have come through a system of 
only doing research or being in this space for two or three more years than what you've been in because it, it's okay to sort of weigh through the muddiness, I guess, in terms of that. But that, that was one of those, those big changing points for me, I think. And, and when you say that, Brock, too, about not having a PhD, I often laugh. And I was talking with a colleague the other day who has a postdoc and, um, I, I don't have a postdoc, so uh, it, it, we were laughing because our PhDs very often uh, seem just like a piece of paper, and we often have more questions after finishing our PhD than what we actually had going into doing our PhD. Oh, yes. And it's not to say that it's not valuable. I think it shows that it is valuable if you have more questions after doing it. But the one thing that I find challenging, especially within the Canadian context, is, is that bar in terms of what you need to be a competent academic is moving always farther and farther away. Mm -hmm. um, so now you need a postdoc. Now you need to have external funding to apply to even an entry level position. Now you need 25 publications to get it. Like it, there's always more and more and more and more. And I find that really challenging because it makes it harder for clinical academics yeah. to move into that space because you're always behind. You're always, you know, like it's sort of these unwritten rules that you don't know about, especially in universities that are um, achieving a very high research profile, yeah. uh, which tend to be a lot of Canadian universities because there are limited um, universities with OT programs in them. So it's very difficult and challenging to get in because you have wonderful academics who have been in the field for a very long time. Um, so you don't have the diversity of a teaching faculty, let's say, like a more focused teaching faculty with a bit of research. Like I'm in that position right now, yeah. but they're fading out and it's moving more towards full like faculty positions which you know aren't lots um, of research less teaching yeah 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 but they all teach like like you said michelle all of our faculty members that are you know um profs they they all do teach they might go on sabbatical for a year depending on how long but they all are still engaged in the curriculum very devoted to you know making sure they have um sort of their finger on the pulse of what's actually happening with the students but it's different because the the qualifications to get those positions are always moving ahead um, and they're always getting more and more difficult. So that's why I went to JCU was because of the opportunity where I did have a PhD, so I did have research experience and clinical experience allowed me to fit in to that um, faculty quite, quite well yeah. um, and gave me the opportunity to have a faculty position at a university, which I was grateful for as well. So yeah, yeah it's, it's um, kind of, I feel that I understand what you're saying in terms of, you know, the, um, the shift is always moving to get that faculty role because more recently, actually, the team I'm working with have been talking to me about, okay, what's your next steps? Or my supervisor's been saying, what's your next steps now? And I'm like, well, I don't really know. And the other day, somebody mentioned to me a postdoc and I was like, no way. I'm still halfway through my PhD. <laughs> I can't even think about that right now. But what kind of froze me is, you know, like I was, I was talking to another mentor of mine 
And I was saying, look, I'm publishing, I'm teaching, I'm doing, you know, all the right things that you were kind of doing a postdoc. What does it matter if I've got a piece of paper that says I've done a postdoc? You know, if I'm doing those things already. Um, and that's what kind of I'm trying to still work out. Like, do, do you have to have it as a set kind of degree thing or like a, um, something that you write on your CV? Or can I prove to somebody that I've actually done all these things that you would do in a postdoc. Because, you know, the reason why I'm doing my research is to take it further. Why would I want to come out of my PhD, go into somebody else's research and, you know, drive their research forward, but allow mine to sit backwards. And that kind mm -hmm. of doesn't resonate very well with me at the moment. So I'm still trying to work out the reasons why somebody would do that. Um, and I don't know if it's because the system in the UK, again, is different to different countries which it would be um because what you were talking about in terms of you know trying to figure out with your supervisor well why have i i'm feeling on my own and why you know i don't really know my path and the reason i picked up a book as you were just saying that actually and this book has helped me so much because it gives me those answers and it's um how to get a phd a handbook for students and their supervisors um it's by phillips and pew and it was, I was told to get it by one of my supervisors before I started. And in there it says essentially, you know, in the first year of your PhD or your academic role, you are kind of starting, you know, that you're more protected with like a web of support. But then it seems like over time they start to actually back off. And the reason is, like you said, is to get your own answers, to be able to justify what you're doing and reason what you're doing. Um, and I felt that was quite powerful in that respect. So it's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm still playing in my mind from what you're saying, Jesse, about those postdoc roles and actually what's the purpose of it? You know, so I feel like I, I don't know if I need to kind of seek out the reasons behind it first to be able to justify stepping back. From yeah, I, I think that that's a, it's a really good point because with the postdoc, I, I wasn't sure either. Like that wasn't... I, I was thinking about doing a postdoc because an opportunity had come up in terms of that after my PhD, but then that sort of fell through. So I moved into sort of working at JCU. And some of the postdocs that you can do can be around your particular area of interest. So if you have a supervisor that's looking at that, you could do it, you could do it as an extension of your PhD work. The real thing I think about a postdoc, and this is, I was talking with a colleague about this as I was applying for other positions and things, and she had said the postdoc demonstrates typically within our Canadian context that you have advanced research skills so that you are able then to independently apply for external funding for grants and things. So as well as you have had the opportunity to supervise master's level students. Okay. As well as you have a higher record of publications, ideally, because you will be partnering with your supervisory team to actually extend your network of publications, right? So that you can sort of up your publications in order to apply for then entry-level positions. The catch-22 is, like you, like you said, I guess, is that it, you don't want to pick a postdoc that goes against your program of research or is differing from it because one of the most important things that I've learned um, since coming back to Canada is defining your program of research and sticking with it. Yeah. So, um, which was different because it's hard to do. 
because I think naturally we're drawn to interesting research ideas or topics or clinical questions. That's what gives us life and energy in terms of, ooh, that's an interesting thing to think about. Or I never thought about possibly doing a project exploring that concept in greater depth. But if it doesn't relate to your program of research, it's one of those bright, shiny ideas that perhaps might take up your time that should be focused on developing your unique contribution to the field of occupational therapy or occupational science. Because what I've learned, and, and multiple people have said this to me in terms of being reflective on what they did wrong, was, was that they were too scattery with their research right off the bat. They were interested in this idea, this idea, and this idea. And what happened then was they didn't dive into any depth and define their program of research well, which then leads to difficulties applying for grants because when you bring your CV forward, you want to demonstrate an area of expertise particular to a topic area, whether that's investigating occupational transitions with individuals who sustain traumatic brain injury. Your program of research needs to be around that, so you need to define it so that then when you apply for external funding, you, people can see, yes, they know what they're talking about. They have published in this area. They have a level of expertise. I then entrust them with this chunk of money to then go away and do a project pertaining to this area, as well as it becomes very helpful when you're applying for jobs to be able to define yourself as a sort of a contributor, I guess, or contributor to the school that you're applying to, but also your unique program of research um, that's, that's yours. It's not your supervisors, that's not your friends, that's not your other colleagues, it's your program. So it's very interesting because you rely on people to help mentor you and you contribute to their program of research, they contribute to yours, but you definitely have to be mindful, I guess, of that next step, which I wasn't. Okay. I just like to do stuff to do stuff. You know, like I'm like, oh, that's an interesting one. Let's do mentorship with visual methods. And it has nothing to do with what my defined program is. So um, that's interesting because that, that was new. Yeah, because in the UK, I, and I don't know if it's the same for you, Brock, in Australia, is so um, we would choose our topic, you know, like I've been studying this since the uh, master's levels and then I did a fellowship and then now I'm doing a PhD. And this is my topic. This is not my supervisors. They've just got interests around this area or expertise within, within what I'm doing, if that makes sense. So I've got yeah. three ladies that are absolutely, well, professors or doctors that are absolutely fantastic and they don't have direct relationship with my topic, but they do have, you know, psychology. They do have um, building, you know, looking at the concepts of models and theory and applying it to practice. Um, and they do have a wealth of knowledge, like absolutely fantastic, but there's nothing that is direct. And that's because I chose the topic. Whereas at master's level, you know, in the US, from my experience currently, I'm not, I'm not saying it's a broad perspective, is that these students would take these ideas from the supervisors and the supervisors would work on their research with the students. So, for example, I'm, I'm very lucky to be mentoring and supporting master's research teams this, um, this coming fall. And it's just me learning about that is to actually how we drive, what research are we driving? Are we driving theirs? Are we driving the supervisors or, or you know, um, 
and kind of going from there. And I'm not too sure if it's the same in Canada. Do you, are you able to kind of come up with your own research question um, and then apply yeah. that within academia and then move forward? I'm not too sure. I'm, I'm, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, that's a good question. It's sort of a blend between the two. So if you're in more of the clinical master's program, so I'm running the um, supervised research um, program this, this coming year. So Basically, they're the clinical master's students, that, so they're not necessarily research intensive, that are looking at sort of a year-end project um, that they do over the course of two years. So it ends up being more of a literature review or a secondary data analysis or something like that. So those projects are typically defined by the faculty. So those projects are doing a lit review that will help to move their program of research forward in whatever area they're looking at or if they've already done a study and they're looking at let's say um, doing a secondary data analysis of transcripts the students the group of students will look particularly at that and they sign up for topics of interest um, sometimes i believe at the masters as well as the phd level of a more research focused um, yes there is a lot more flexibility in terms of your topics and area of interest however sometimes I think they're molded and they're guided by the faculty as well because they're not going to supervise a student with a completely different topic of interest you know even if it's even if they align on research methods so if I'm a grounded theory expert and my area let's say is traumatic brain injury I'm not going to supervise a student necessarily in grounded theory and driver rehab because it doesn't contribute to my program of research. You know what I mean? So there's still a bit of, you know, we need to push the agendas of the faculty forward because they, it has to be a good use of their time as well. There has to be a good reciprocal relationship. Okay. Um, so at the same time, yeah, there is, there is the flexibility. So I was in the very same position, but my supervisor liked or developed the intervention that I was using. So okay. the co-op, Dr. Mandich, she had created it with Dr. Politeko. So for me, of course, she's my supervisor because that's her area of expertise. She wasn't necessarily an expert in adolescents with ASD but she was an expert in co-op so the same kind of idea yeah. you can shape and mold your project what you want it to be but um, you have to be mindful that you are fitting I guess still within the expertise of your supervisors they won't supervise you if you're totally in left field <laughs> from what they're doing because that's the same yeah thing. yeah my supervisors are you yeah. know I'm looking into uh, communication the therapeutic relationship and they are, you know, they specialize in that. They've brought out a model to do with it. And mine's just a different kind of concept around that. Yeah. And so I understand that more. Yeah, I was just kind of trying to figure out, like, how, you know, because these ideas, you know, in the UK, you can come up with an idea about what you want to teach and then they, uh, sorry, research, and then they would kind of apply you to the supervisor within the institution that you're in, like I'm at the University of Cumbria. So we had a breadth of researchers that would have a, lots of different, you know, directions. And then the students would come up with their research question and then they would be applied to the supervisor and it would be adapted as, as required. Um, and I just find it so interesting how it's quite cool actually, you know, how the, the research is kind of, directed through the principles of already of the supervisors within the system that I'm actually in right now mm -hmm. 
Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, like, because mine's completely different to everybody else's here. And that's quite interesting too, because, you know, I've got a different set of skills and um, I'm having mentoring students that, uh, master students that are using the skills, but nobody else kind of uses them within the department, which is, you know, that's why I'm having more opportunities along that line. Um, but again, the, those skills are not direct to actually what, no, sorry, the topic is not direct to what I'm doing. It's more the skill of what they need to do, mm. you know, reflexivity and reflection in the and the methodology that they're doing kind of thing. What about you, Brooke? What, so are you looking at your idea and then seeking out supervisors or I know this is kind of switched from moving from academia to a PhD, but it's kind of all the same kind of, you know, it's all tied together. Uh, I've just begun initial, very initial uh, stages of planning out the, I guess the route uh, on how, I can go from where I am now through to PhD. Uh, so, yeah, for the next, I don't even know what month it is, two, three months, it's going to be looking at what's out there and trying to, because I'm, I'm an ideas person. I have a thousand ideas. <laughs> I, need, I need to, like, pin one yeah, down and have some conversations with people and just see, like, is there a PhD in some of these ideas? Uh, I've been told already a couple of my ideas uh, have got legs, but I need to actually, yeah, put some put some elbow grease into it and, and and try and work out what I want to spend the next decade of my life looking into. So, I and I- it's hard, you know, when you're starting to find your research question. It's like you know, you need to review the theory without having an expectation, and it kind of seems mm. to just kind of come to you. And your research question, I just want to warn you, it will change at every stage oh, yeah. until the end. No doubt, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. And I think I just, I think because I've got such, even within the profession, like I've got such broad interest area. Like I've probably got three or four really broad interest areas. Yeah. Um, within the profession, it'd be kind of almost just trying to narrow that down will help. Uh, and then it'll give me an idea of where to start looking. But I mean, the, the initial conversations I've had have been around essentially like find what you're passionate about and then find the supervisor that sort of fits what you want to do as opposed to, you know, taking whoever's there and then working it out with them kind of thing. Um, so, I, like, I am being encouraged to find exactly, like, work towards exactly what I want to research. Um, it's just a matter. It's more in, in my head now trying to work out what exactly that might be. Because I think I find, and I know it's going to change, but even just, like, hypothetically, if it doesn't, and I've, you know, nailed down something that I really want to look into, just committing to that one thing when I have so many varied interest areas and really putting all of my effort or pretty much putting all of my eggs in sort of one basket. Um, for me, it's difficult because I'm used to one being in control and doing whatever I want, uh, which is going to be an interesting <laughs> culture shock, I think. Uh, and, and yeah, and, and I guess, not getting rid of, but putting less focus into some of the interest areas that currently I just sort of share my my time between. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So will, do you think your program will give you time to do that, you know, to do a PhD? Would they give you allocated time or do, would you need to do that in your own time? 
I'm not 100% sure. Uh, at the moment, we're flat out because we're a couple of staff down, so I don't think there would be any chance of taking any time at the moment. Uh, but you know, who knows what the future what the future brings? They have you know given people time at at various times that I know of. So like, it's not off the guards. I just think it's more a workload thing at the moment. Yeah. So I think no. But- I think you're. Sorry, I think you're. I think you're right too with the idea of building it around your area of passion. Mm. You know, because you devote a lot of time, mm. like reading, research. You know, thinking about it for four years. You know, often that, and even longer. You know, in some in some cases, is, is that you'd hate to be. I always say that to students, even in small research projects, like you don't want to pick something that you are just picking because, you know, it's easy or it's something that you can get done because you'll regret it because just think reading something over and over again about an area that you're not invested in, it becomes work and it's not supposed to be that way. It's already hard enough to do a PhD, let alone picking something that's in topic interest that you have no idea about or have no, you know, sort of vested interest in or buy into. It would just be Oh, I can't even. I can't even imagine and what that, that would look and like. And that's all you know? get, like, I think Michelle. <laughs> like Michelle like said. Michelle said earlier, like when I buy into something, I buy in a hundred percent. So I really want to make sure that it's it's something that I can sink my teeth into, and it's something that I really want to do. Like, like you said, I don't want to just pick something that. Um, you know, someone else has told me, oh, yeah, that'll be a really good topic. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, like I could, I could do it, but it's, it's my heart's not fully in it. Like I want whatever, well, the, whatever the topic about, may be. Yeah. It makes you think about occupation as like, you know, I'm being a bit nerdy now, I know. But when you kind of try and tell somebody to do an occupation that has no meaning to them and no value, yeah, yeah. then they're never going to do it, you know, and it's never going to have any productivity out of that. So in my sense, I, you know, I'm doing a qualitative research. So I had to look for those values. I had to look for the purpose. I had to look for where I was coming from as my approach as a researcher and how it um, basically influenced my understanding of of life and how I experience life and how I see life. Um, And I'm not going to go into all the long words about that, but it's kind of, you know, it's looking at, (laughs) it's looking at, um, What's the, how do you elect your values and your meaning to doing something? Um, And I always say, even before trying to start the PhD, is looking at that. And I'm doing grounded theory. So I couldn't, you know, recently um, present my literature review in my transfer report. And um, that's a kind of a stage within the PhD that you have to go through between 18 and 24 months in the UK. Um, So I study in the UK still, but I'm on placement in the US, basically. And you have to, it's like a viva, so you have to write the report and justify your stage of research at that point and what you're going to do next. And I couldn't present my, my literature review because in grounded theory, that comes at the end because you're searching something out. You've come up with a question and you're searching out and the data drives the data essentially. So I had to, so what I did was I presented on my methodology and why the the reasons why I do the research, how I see the world, the purpose, what's my approach and what's my understanding of how I place myself within that research. And I found that so powerful 
to be under to understand of this is not work this is this is a purpose and a reason to do it you know like I've mm-hmm. like I said earlier never got really got a plan but obviously I do have a plan but an unspoken plan in some ways um and I found that quite difficult to begin with because you know the research the institution that I was in usually well I am in usually they expect a literature review at that point during the transfer panel um and I had to fight it for my own reasoning um and for my methodology and to and for my integrity as a researcher um but I I do suggest you know to even look at the reasons why you're doing a research but also ask for time to support that you know because in my clinical practice the reason one of the reasons why I had to step out of it was because they wouldn't provide me time to actually do any research regardless of what the benefit it would have been to the profession or the departments that I was actually in at that point because I was even happy to run my research through the department but they couldn't afford that time because of national policies local and you know um, possibly purposeful department use of time etc yeah so, and I think I think that's pretty the same here for on terms of the health system I don't know anyone who's completed a PhD working clinically and I know that well, it was hard to get time off just to do like a course let alone you know engage in some sort of formal study and you think but they, every health system I've ever seen has you know research or innovation or something in their core values but it just there's no follow-through yeah um or the the resource constraints are just too great to be able to and that that's usually the first thing that gets knocked down it's it's seen as less important than obviously that sort of acute uh or like first con- frontline care so it's kind of put on the back burner whenever resources are skint, which in today's age in pretty much every country in the world is permanently. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, you know, um, and that's why a lot of really good, I'm not saying that's about myself, but I'm saying about it in terms of people that go into academia, they're absolutely amazing clinicians. They're absolutely fantastic. Like they think about things widely, you know, they think about the external effects on practice and how they can change and support you know their current practice in in clinical um in the clinical setting but the clinical setting doesn't allow them to support that so then they need to step out and then they take it somewhere else and take it into academia and i feel like that is our the impact upon our bridging the gap between theory and practice Sometimes the theory doesn't work within practice because my intention all along was to ensure that I maintained a clinical practice that my research is embedded within the voices of occupational therapists and the practice of occupational therapists. But it was impossible. It's so difficult. So although now I'm quite, I'm, I'm still, I still have that value and I still go and um, shadow occupational therapists. I spend time with them and I ensure I have their voice it's not really from a personal perspective, um, you know, to understanding what are the actual challenges in my everyday practice. Um, so you do have these amazing clinicians kind of stepping out into academia and driving the force. And I understand that and teaching the new occupational therapists that are going to be going into practice and changing the profession in that way. And they are fantastic people and they work really, really hard. But I just wish that, you know, clinical practice um, settings actually understand and have the time 
and you know accommodate the time to people that want to do research within their field because a lot of people that are doing that are actually doing it in their own time and outside of their working time and that doesn't create as a profession for us to understand you know what is the balance of us as occupational therapists and how do we get pleasure in our day regardless that we want to support you know the profession to enable people we need to also enable ourselves and that's yeah. kind of my biggest challenge in my kind of head about supporting research in within clinical and and I, it's sad because I always say to my mentor at the moment, I really miss my clients. I really miss working with people and it really hurts. <laughs> and it's kind of like, well, how can I work out that I can have a 50-50 job? And are they actually yeah. available? And do we need to kind of fight for that in the profession to make it available? Yeah. And I think like you'd be, you'd be hard pressed to find a clinical OT that doesn't want to make the profession better or doesn't have mm-hmm. things that, you know, they, they can see gaps that need looking into or that need research. And it's just, I, I've heard a number of sort of, uh, you know, ways to fix it. Obviously trying to give them time to be able to do that themselves is, is one I've heard, uh, people advocating for uh, like closer linkages between the universities and the clinic and the clinicians, so that you know the clinicians, yeah, they'll come up with the ideas and not ob- like obviously find the gaps, and then it's you know make a partnership with the uni or our uni to actually do the research, and then you know that kind of thing. Even any kind of partnership between two completely different areas like that is going to be really difficult to one negotiate and maintain, and you know, two different funding bodies and two different everything. It's going to be hard to the point of even just arranging that from a clinical position would be nigh impossible. I think we can like kind of you know some people are like oh it's just i found like when i was in clinical practice it was like people just like no we can't do it and it wasn't Mm. you know it wasn't even considered and i also think about you know if we think about discourse and understanding discourse and the discourse of thought language and evidence of what we do we're always and presenting it to the right people will provide us opportunities and it's just kind of trying to you know it's forcing that in some ways as much as we can you know it's like it's evidence in occupational therapy and practice is justifying what we do and justifying it to the right people and also not assuming that we need to go into the culture of other professions to be accepted as a profession so it's mm-hmm. looking at that discourse and the language and the evidence of what we're doing and presenting it and i think you know i know in the uk i'm not too and i know in the us now obviously is that these occupational therapy students, especially in the institutions that I'm in, they have the research ability, they have the ability to express and articulate what we're doing. Um, and it's just, you know, making that, I feel personally, it's making that as a prime skill of justifying our role. Because we're constantly, I feel like sometimes we're constantly fighting between the fire and the wood. And it's it's so difficult and it's just trying to, understand that discourse is the prime function of what we need to be doing as professionals. Do you think that's a specific OT thing or just a health profession in general thing though? I think it's a health professional general thing, but I also think, I'm sorry, I'm very aware that I'm taking the monopoly now of this conversation. Feel free. Um, 
but I also think you know it's we have we've come from the healthcare profession so we've come from medical profession of you know thousands of years or whatever and we've stepped in during the wartime what 200 well 100 years ago officially um and that's young that's young for a profession and we are working on a social model in a medical model world quick fix quick numbers but yet the social model is a long kind of is a longer turnover but it's a longer um it's sustainable you know it's a longer sustainable approach that's what a social model is that like we are all working on a social model if you look at how the reasons why people have medical conditions it's because of the social influence upon their health so it's you know it's looking at it slightly backwards and it, and it is starting to shift because you do get medical professionals and i know personally from a doctor that i work with and she's a really good friend of mine now when we worked together it worked because she was medical yes but she was also social perspective she realized that the influence of her family for example on this person telling this lady that she wasn't independent you know would affect her health and her mood and her and because it would affect her mood it would then affect her bladder because she was sitting down for long periods and things like that so she saw it from a backwards approach and she understood that and our our anyone that we work really worked with didn't actually get readmitted because we uh, were aware that this therapy and this service that we were providing was sustainable for the context of that person and the value and the meaning of that person so for your original question saying do you think it's because it's any health professionals i don't think it is i think we're still within that model of medical in some ways and we're still trying to force our position into that medical perspective at times but it's also you know it's we need to be able to justify the discourse and the language and ask for time to be able to do this research in a young profession to be able to drive the research forward and to change professions as, as what you said like all the clinicians know of a way it's hard to find one to not change what we're doing or what we want to do as professionals um and whether that's bringing it for academia you know stepping into academia is hard but also it's probably harder for clinicians to be able to get their voice out for those for those reasons i don't know mm-hmm. i'm just kind of putting it out there i'm kind of arguing a little bit no, now. no, I, no I, that fits probably you've just explained more eloquently than uh, i possibly could a lot of the sentiments that i bang on about with a lot of other people mm-hmm.